episode 386, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, part 3, That Hideous Strength. Welcome to the Strangers and Aliens podcast. Strangers. <laughs> to boldly say what needs to be said. Would you be a stranger or an alien? Or would you be a strange alien? The truth is out there. Strangers and aliens. I am your father's best friend's plumber. Versus Captain Kirk. Do you think that there's room in sci-fi for God? The very first thing that God did was that He created something. So we have a creative God. This is Strangers and Aliens podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Strangers and Aliens, a podcast about science, fiction, and fantasy, and faith, and Christianity. And today we are going to be taking a look at a book that is written by one of the greatest, if not the greatest, writers to just take that intersection of science fiction and fantasy and... And yeah. faith in Christianity. I mean, it's I think just, if it weren't for amazing. him, we probably wouldn't be here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not, I mean physically, we'd probably be here, but <laughs> I don't think we would be I, doing I, this. I, I don't know if I'd be born if it wasn't for C.S. Lewis. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think he was dead before you were. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. Okay, so I probably would have been born, but yeah. Maybe. We wouldn't be here on mic talking about Point this stuff, point. probably. Because, I mean,. I don't know if we've talked about this in our previous episodes, but C.S. Lewis was a huge part of me feeling intellectual in high school (laughs) and his books. I mean, they really did. uh, On the one hand, it was like I felt smart reading them because I kind of understood them. Uh, But on the other hand, they they were understandable and they touched me at a uh, intellectual and emotional level. And that's what art needs to do. It needs to make you think. It needs to make you feel. And if it does both, it's really done its job. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in high school, this book made me feel confused. <laughs> <laughs> How could it not? Yeah, I, I struggled with this one. but Yeah, so That Hideous Strength is what we're talking about right now. We have talked about the other two books in this series on the podcast before. And basically, it's been one book per year. Uh, the first time we recorded, we recorded about Out of the Silent Planet mm-hmm. in episode 344. Episode 372 was Paralandra, which is only 14 episodes ago, but it was about a year ago. And so we're just going to pretend like maybe there was more episodes happening. But we, we've we talked about it. But All those phantom episodes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then there was the time that we recorded about Out of the Silent Planet in episode 47 and forgot about it when we recorded about it the second time <laughs> in 344. Yeah. And some other podcast episodes where we did talk about C.S. Lewis. We did two episodes about Till We Have Faces, 211 and 212. 
And we did an episode called The Silver Chair and the Red and Blue Pills. That was episode 66. And we did a celebration of C.S. Lewis in episode 101. And we talked about, or I talked about, The Four Loves and Jackie Brown, the Tarantino movie, in episode 367. So that, that's what we have done in the past. But I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good because we're, we're finishing up another another series. <laughs> another series of sort of, of podcast episodes well because there's still that sort of part of the trilogy like the the half a book that he sort of wrote in previous episodes <laughs> we kind of said eh, maybe yes maybe no but I, i'm definitely leaning in on the maybe yes side of that to talk about the dark tower which was the sequel that was never finished if you never believe really that he polished. actually wrote it, <laughs> and, well, yeah. which is a whole—that's a whole part of that episode because there's a whole, whole controversy. But uh, that would have been uh, the episode or not, the, the book episode that would have taken place after Out of the Silent Planet. But he abandoned it for good reason, I think. And yeah. instead, we got Paralandra, which is one of the greatest books of all time for me personally. And then we move on. To part three, which is that hideous strength. Yeah, and we move from Mars, which was the basically the place in the first book, and then to Venus. And now, you know, it's sort of like uh, thesis, antithesis, and now we get synthesis on Earth, sort of the middle. And does anyone follow? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I always just appreciated that we had Ransom going away, Ransom going away. And then in this episode, I keep calling it episode, which kind of is. But <laughs> in this episode, he stays on Earth and the other worldly beings come here and visit. Spoilers. Here. And the other thing with that is, and we'll talk about it, but. He went to Mars, he went to Venus, and there are clear episodes in this book of the bringer of war and the goddess of love. Mm -hmm. And it's, to me, and that was one of those things that I noticed on the past, this most recent reread, was that there was this element of, of the war and then this element of, of love. And those are also the two planets that he had visited earlier right right yeah so there will be spoilers as we move into conversation although right now as we're talking about some background stuff and our own background with the book uh they'll be fairly light but we're gonna have to talk about spoilers because how else are we gonna talk about this book because as big as this book is though there's so much so much to talk about yeah and it's been around for 75 years so you know the spoilers, it, there's there's a time limit on spoilers. <laughs> so I figure anything before Star Wars, you can spoil now. All right. Steve, when did you first read this book? You know what? I'm trying to remember if I... I don't think I actually finished this book until I read it last year for this episode. And I thought we were going to get to it last year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things happen. Um, I don't know if anybody realizes that things happen. Um, <laughs> so um, 
I think <laughs> that I actually finished it last year for the first time. Um, but I do remember digging through it and it just, I, I remember it was just like, I'm like this newly married couple and, you know, talking about switching colleges and English colleges. And I don't understand the English college system. And it was just like, there were too many layers for me to break through that. I just, I think I just got you know, just far enough into it. Like I, I've read a hundred pages of the brothers Karamazov and just put it down because I'm like, I don't, yeah, I, I, I didn't get it at that point. You know, I, I finally finished the Silmarillion after reading a hundred pages and putting it back down. And it was just like, there's just so much that was, I, I could not break through at that point. And, uh, and for this, I said, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to take notes and I'm going to, you know, be interested in the, you know, all the different things that are presented to me and, and, you know, get through it because, you know, obviously we needed to do it for an episode, but I, I wanted to, to get through it. You know, I, I sort of wanted it to be one of my favorite books. You know, I, I, it would have been cool if, if someone said, you know, Hey, what, you know, what C.S. Lewis books have you really enjoyed and, and you know, what, which ones really made a huge impact? And you, that hideous strength, it just has that weight to it. You're just like, wow, you, that hideous strength. Wow, really? Tell me about it. And then I could you know, propound on. So is it one of your favorite books? <laughs> you know what? There, there's some concepts and some things in there that are really interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I wouldn't say it was one of my favorites. No, um, it, it would be, like I said, it would be interesting to go back and mine all the different things that, you know, I, I underlined and made notes of and things like that. And, and some of the things are absolutely mind blowing. You know, when it when it comes to, for instance, you know, when they're talking about politics and, you know, the, uh, one of the characters is like, you know, well, you know, what's the right side? And they're like, there, there is no right side. We use whichever side we need to further our purposes. And, you know, whatever side is, is the most beneficial to furthering our purpose, that's what we do. And so I'm like. I get it now. So like this last six years of, you know, people talking about, I'll just say president A and president B and, you know, sometimes president C. Um, <laughs> it's just like they're, they're falling into the same trap that CS Lewis outlined for us 75 years ago. And it's yeah, like, yeah. so uh, one of the characters you know, is literally I, writing articles for both yep. sides of the political spectrum about the same thing. Yeah. And it's just, well, we're writing it this way to get them on our, to sway them. We're writing it this way to sway them. And we know that these other people were never going to sway because they don't trust anyone in the news. They only read the, read the newspaper to, you know, for gossip and the weather. <laughs> and, and we're never <laughs> yeah. going to sway them with our articles here, but yeah. But who cares about them? <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to kick them out of their houses. Exactly. Uh, so it's yeah, interesting I mean, though that you discovered this basically then as an adult and came to this 
I I think in some ways the age it's intended for, like an older, yeah. more mature age. Yeah, I I wouldn't give this to my my kids. Even like my my older son is twenty, and I think you know as much as he's you know read the Harry Potter books and you know understands British humor and things like that, I think this it would just be way too dense for him to to start to to pound through and you wouldn't give it to a teenager i mean it's just not a, a, an american teenager um well it's just... my aunt and uncle did give it to an american te- teenager <laughs> uh this... but probably as a trilogy right i mean <laughs> yeah the trilogy was given to me when i was in eighth grade and i read out of the silent planet i don't remember if i read paralander then or not but I do remember not really getting into Out of the Silent Planet. I mean, they gave it to me because I loved the Narnia books. And, mm. and my dad told them, well, he likes the Narnia books. Let's get him this now. And it was a natural next step. It was just a little too early of a next step. In high school, I did read all of them, though. I did read That Hideous Strength. And I just remember it was being a slog and not really enjoying it that much. And in college, I read it again. And I finally did, as an adult, actually read it and and appreciate and understand it. Um, appreciate and understand. I think that's that's the key there. Um, and it, there's it's it's not like there's no enjoyment in it. It's just you know I mean it's, some of the things that C.S. Lewis does are it's just a British thing. Like every single book has elements of of nudity in it where I'm like, it's a Christian book. You don't have to have so much nudity. in there. <laughs> And it, it's not like it's lurid, you know, it's not like it's, no, it's not at all. Yeah. But it's, it's just to the point where it's like, and why is, did you have to, I mean, it, so it, and just little things like that, little elements like that where, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, slightly it's not how i would have written it although the way that he just gets so much depth into the casual uh mentionings of things and the you know character names and things like that it's just it's an amazing way to uh you know i enjoy when when things are written that way and i mean just for the the sheer you know, you can put it down and now you can research all the different little nuances, um, you know, quotes that he makes on things. And, you know, I mean, some of it are, are it's, it's fictitious, you know, yeah. <laughs> he's quoting yeah. something that's fictitious. But <laughs> it's even interesting to to note that, you know, and, and just. Um, it's it's unfortunate because I feel like for this book anyway, it's greatest strength is also its greatest weakness and that's its density. There's just mm-hmm. so much packed in there that it really needs a, a review. It re it needs a reread and it needs you to be able to, you know, read it the one time and then read it the next time. So you can pick up on some of the things you hadn't noticed. Um, Cause I did uh, listen to it in preparation for this episode. I started listening to it last week because mm-hmm. I just finished um, my, my other series. And I was like, well, what next? Oh, that hideous strength. We're going to talk about it next week. And, and even then this time is like, Oh, I'm noticing more things. I'm noticing different things. And, um, 
And it, but it's just, there's just so much that if you're not taking notes, you're not going yeah. to remember. And yeah. so like, I have a feeling that this episode could be a really long episode just because there's so many different things, but some of the depth of what I appreciated about it as I was reading it or listening to it in this most recent time is just kind of a, uh, it, it, it washed over me and now it's, it's gone. And I did finally take some notes, but yeah, when it was almost too late, <laughs> but it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a thick book. It's a dense read, but it's not a difficult read. If, if you're able to get yourself into it. Yeah. Because those first few chapters <laughs> where it is just, here's Jane thinking about her marriage, but we don't even see her with her husband, Mark. Uh, and here's, here's Mark going to a college board meeting <laughs> and they're going to talk about selling the land or not. You know, we yeah. get two chapters of just, yeah, here's how the meeting went and here's some of the notes that they brought and here's some of the, and it's, it's, in some ways interesting because you have just the little, the wheels turning behind it and the manipulation of the, um, the people on, on, I'm calling it the board, but you know, whatever, yeah. whatever it's called in the, in the book it, there. So there's, there's intrigue, but it's like college governmental intrigue. It's, it feels so small yeah. and then it gets so and, big. The consequences are big, you know, Selling the land means that the bad guys own the land where someone important had been buried, who right. they might be able to resurrect. And <clears throat> there's consequences, but it does start small. And yeah, and it's it's one of those things where you know you read it. it it's sort of like, <clears throat> excuse me, it's sort of like. Uh, the Last Battle, which is the final book in the Narnia series, where when I read The Last Battle, I got to the end of it, and I'm like, the whole first part of it, while interesting, it's it's moot. It has no real purpose except to illustrate some things at the end of The Last Battle. And it's like you it, you don't really need to have had that story told because the ending is so ultimate, you know, but the way he does it is interesting enough that it carries you through. And um, some stories I find are like that, um, you know, and, and, and it can be a waste of your time, like, like watching, uh, or uh, like sometimes a, a, a comic book will, will retcon an entire thing. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the 20 years that you've been reading this comic book, all of that didn't count. And it's just this new thing going forward that counts. And it's sort of like, well, what was the whole purpose of that? except for me to, you know, create emotional bonds with the characters that now you're having them do completely different things than they ever would have in that, that 20 years. And, you know, that, when I stopped reading comic books and I realized that they were, you know, jettisoning continuity for different reasons, um, it was hard for me to, to get back into it. 
you know, and, and it's sort of like, you know, you watch a, a modern Marvel or DC movie and you're like, I care about the character that this is based on, but sometimes I just don't care about the character, you know? I mean, I grew up watching the animated Batman and the, the Adam West Batman and stuff like that. But if you really take it to its logical conclusion, those things were based on the earlier Batman, you know, and things were jettisoned to make those things. So it's, I guess it's wherever you come in, you know, like we had that episode where, you know, you're the, the best year was it the best year in comic books. Yeah. And we basically said the best year was the year that it really made a difference to you, the year that it impacted you. And, you know, that's going to be your like your head cannon. You know, that's that's where you go to. I think it was uh, so, Neil Gaiman or Gaiman who said uh, the golden age of comics is 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. Something like that. And it's 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 when it made that impact. But to to have it as like an actual physical thing that you're reading from cover to cover and you get to the end of it and you realize that, you know, all of the 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 talk and the rhetoric and the you know name dropping and the the politics and the the whole thing to have it summed up so ultimately sometimes can be a little jarring if you really want to put your you know all your emotional marbles into that bag yeah it although it also depends on how you read it because the one thing i noticed this time around when i most recently was listening to it uh, I had been focusing on the outer conflict every time I was reading it, which is all about NICE and how they are trying to, you know, create this science fiction utopia where we can move beyond physical body and things like that. And they don't yeah. care They're, that morality doesn't fall into any of their equations other than it's an obstacle for them to overcome, to be able to do these, these things that are just going to be awful and, Mm-hmm. and defeating that. And so yeah. you have uh, elements from the Arthurian le- legend that, that come into being here and you have, you know, so you have Merlin showing up and you have the, the gods show up. And as, as far as the personification of the worlds coming, mm-hmm. so you have Venus, you have Mars, you have Jupiter, you have all these things kind of showing up and you have, uh, the macrocosms, the, these beings macrobes. that are macrobes, macrobes, you have these yeah. beings that are beyond us, you know, you have all these different things going on. Uh, and then I started realizing when you get to the end though, the final triumph of the book is these two people, Jane and Mark and how their marital relationship is healed and as they come to know their relationship with God and that relationship is healed. They both are coming to an understanding of who God is. And they actually even talk about Is Merlin a Christian? Yes. Are you one yet? <laughs> no, not yet, but you, it's okay if you aren't right now, it's, it's good enough that you're following me right now, but you're going to have to soon, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to yeah. become a believer soon. And so, if you look at this book with all of its big cosmic stuff, all that big cosmic stuff is happening and they have very little 
very little agency in the midst of it other than they can choose to be on the right side or the wrong side. Right. And if they choose to be on the wrong side, they are going to get mauled by a bear. And if they choose to be on the right side, then they're going to be a part of nature and the natural and yeah. they're going to they're going to live they or not. But even if they don't live, it's OK because they would die in the service of of right and in the service of of God. And so I, I started looking at it that way. And you're talking about the you know all these things being of no consequence from the beginning. But once you start looking at it, this is the the story of Mark and Jane coming to know who God is and therefore having a better marriage as well. And so their marriage, the, the, well, they become the bride of Christ and they become a married couple and they're able to change their, their perspective of each other and their perspective of life together. And it's all of that's what matters. And it's so small and inconsequential. Mm -hmm. And yet it's so human because that's, that's us, you know, like we're, right. we're here on this planet in this very small role, although vital role that we play as a believer in our circle and a believer in our realm of influence and a believer in, you know, as we follow God's mission for us, which means sometimes moving our realm of influence and going on mission trips and going to the missions field and that sort of thing. But that's, that's life. And it's the same with ransom in the previous two books where he's just a regular guy who gets pulled into this ultimate conflict where he goes to Malacandra, learns the language and then because he learned the language, he's able to go to Paralandra and help uh, Tinadril. Is that her name? I think that's her name. But uh, help, something like that, help anyway. the queen yeah. of Paralandra to stand during her temptation. And because he's learned the language of the cosmos. And he's just a normal guy who gets pulled into a thing that is way beyond him. <laughs> and now he's not so normal. So that's the other thing cool thing about his strength for me is if I never read it again, reading it once is enough because every time I read Paralandra, I know what happens to him afterward. Mm -hmm. And I, I really appreciate that. I wish he was more in the book. I wish the book had been about him. Mm -hmm. I wish the book had been more adventurous, you know, the way that the other two were, but here he is and he's the Fisher King. Yep. And he's still got his wound on his foot that was uh, that I remember reading Paralandra and in memories of reading it, I remember the wound happening in battle. Yeah. But then when we went back to it for our podcast, and I read that part and it's just like, nope, it just happened somewhere along the way. It happened. <laughs> he doesn't even remember when it happened, but it's there and it's lasted and it's been with him since then. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right, and and, and I'm, I don't want to take away that from the book, but you know, at the at the same time, to to have all of those words, and you know, all the intrigue and all the the background and all the you know behind the scenes looks at all the different things, and to have it resolve into something so I, I don't want to say you know 
simple in the sense that a marriage is simple. I mean, it's a it's a image of of you know God in the church, Christ in the church, but something as as common to us as as marriage. You know, it would be uh, to me. It's it it almost seems as though sometimes C.S. Lewis started to write and didn't have the ending in sight and continued to write. And, you know, perhaps, you know, the, the dark tower is, is sort of like that where he wrote and didn't have a a firm ending and wrote to a point where he said, you know what? I mean, maybe the, the manuscripts are lost. Maybe they just don't exist. And he just said, you know what? I, 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 I have nowhere to go with this. So I'm just going to put it aside and, you know, maybe think about it and maybe come up with something later. Um, but I think with some of his, his things, a lot of it was writing because, you know, in his head, he wanted to tell the story. He wanted to get that moving and to keep it moving to the point where it could get to that ending point. Uh, you know, sometimes it's just putting words on the paper and, and I don't think perhaps the editor did him justice by, you know, leaving it at 382 pages. So here's maybe (laughs) what you need, because in one hand, I have this heavy book that is a hardcover volume, 380 pages in my other hand. And it's called that hideous strength. In my other hand, I hold a book called the tortured planet specially abridged by the author <laughs> 250 pages okay. and it's also smaller than usual paperback size so okay. a regular paperback i don't know maybe six inches yeah this is a half inch shorter all right than a regular paperback and, and less pages and fewer pages and Should he abridged like it himself words. And it actually, in the preface, he writes, in reducing the original story to a length more suitable for this edition, I believe I have altered nothing but the tempo and the manner. <laughs> I myself prefer the more leisurely pace. I would not wish even War and Peace or The Fairy Queen any shorter. But some critics, like Steve MacDonald <laughs> in 2022, <laughs> may well think this abridgment is also an improvement. <laughs> but that's, and that's the thing, too. Like, whenever I get something that's abridged... Unless it's something that's just absolute, like I wouldn't read this, like I wouldn't read War and Peace unless I have an abridged version. I just happen to have an abridged version, so that's the one I would go to. But something like this, where it's 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 in my swing zone, you know, it's it's in my purview. This I I should know that this is 380 pages, and you know what's on the different pages and how the pace is and everything. And even if I had that 250-page version, I would probably still read the 380-page <laughs> version because I would say, well, what did well, what did he cut out? Yeah, yeah. I, I do know? find it interesting, though. He did it himself. So that's the one yeah. thing that right. makes me curious. I just have never brought myself to actually read the abridged version. Mm-hmm. I just know that there are shorter passages. I've read brief little snippets here on the inter- here and there on the Internet saying this was cut out and that was cut out just as examples of what he right. did. But um, I just haven't been able to bring myself to actually uh, read it. The thing about that hideous strength to me 
and it's kind of similar to what you're talking about for you personally. And I, I talk about this. I, I started a, doing a series of videos on YouTube called, is it worth reading? And when I give the answer, there's a couple different answers I'm giving when I say yes or no. And one is, is it worth reading as a Christian sci-fi novel? Is it a good sci-fi novel on its own without mm-hmm. it necessarily having that other label? Is it a good Christian novel? But then also, is it homework? You know, and we've talked about sci-fi homework before where right. 2001, I think is a movie that any fan of science fiction movies should watch 2001, watch it once you may not like it, you may hate it, but you'll understand then when people reference it and when they talk about it in different ways. And uh, Planet right. of the Apes is another one. Obviously, Star Wars, the first Star Wars is another one where if you haven't yeah. seen it, uh, movies changed after that. That's yeah. that's sci-fi homework, you know? And Phantom I would Planet. say, was that? The Forbidden Planet. Yeah, which I was thinking about the other day that we should do an episode about Forbidden Planet. I don't know if we already have. But I, I think we may have, but well, I would love to do another one. Yeah, <laughs> it, but that's it's sci-fi homework because of yeah. what it does, the ideas it has, and then what it inspired afterward. And I would say that that hideous strength is something that if you are a fan of C.S. Lewis and you haven't read the Space Trilogy, read the Space Trilogy so you can read one of the greatest books of all time, Paralandra. But make sure you also read that hideous strength so that you can know what happened to Ransom. You can get more Lewis out of your, uh, in your life, you know, and you may never come back to it, but it's worth reading at least once. I can't say that, you know, in order to be able to appreciate it as, as much and as fully as you can, I can't say you should read it multiple times. But if you really want to appreciate it for what it really is, you you have to read it multiple times. It's just so big. And again, that's where the weakness is because it's so big. It's not something you can really invest in multiple readings like Paralandra. That's a short read. That's a breezy yeah. read. And that's something that it deserves to be read multiple times so you can get you know, the nuances and everything. But mm-hmm. I, I can't say that about that hideous strength. I, and I've only accidentally done it myself. You know, I've read it a few times <laughs> over the years because I yeah. love Paralandra so much. And so it's kind of the wagon is hitched there. Uh, and I've read it twice in the last two years, read it once or listened to it twice. I can't remember if before the when we were preparing for the episode last year, I can't remember if I listened to it or read it, but it doesn't matter. I consumed it twice in the last two years. And I, so it was kind of fun because I saw things I hadn't seen before, but at the same mm-hmm. time, I would never have done that on my own. <laughs> I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have. Yeah. If it wasn't for this podcast, I think it just would have stayed up on my shelf. And, uh, you know, if I ever had the time to like, if, if I ever caught COVID and it was like, you know, running into the third week and I was just like, you know, I, I, I have to quarantine. I'm to keep testing positive. It's like, all right, Let's just do something to sort of take the time, you know, what can, oh, oh, there's a 400 page book that I can dig into, <laughs> you know, and just sit there and, and plow through it. Um, you know, just something to, to, to chisel away at little bits by little bits. Um, you know, when I was reading it, I, uh, I had a stack of books that I would, I, I 
drive a, a, a city bus basically. And, um, I had a lot of times where I would drop people off and then I would be waiting for other people to come on the bus for lengthy periods of time, 15 minutes, sometimes 45 minutes. And, um, I just brought a stack of books. So I would read a chapter or, you know, a, a good amount of one book and then put that down and pick up another one. It's sort of like, you know, changing channels on the TV, except you're, you know, I'd have a fantasy book and then a science fiction book and then a, you know, a, a, a nonfiction book. And, you know, I, I just f go back and forth different genres and it would just sort of keep me entertained and interested in all the different things. And, um, so with that hideous strength, there was, you know, it was on that pile for a while. And, you know, some books I got through quicker than that book. And there's some books that I'm still reading, so, <laughs> you know, from last year. So, you know, it's, it wasn't the, the most difficult book in the world. In fact, because I knew that we were going to do a, a podcast on it, I made sure that I had a pen with me at all times when I was, uh, when I was reading it because I wanted to, you know, circle things and underline things and, you know, define things and, and have all that stuff. So when I look at it now, it, it just has all my little notes in it. And it's, you know, that makes it worthwhile to me because now I don't have to, if I, if I wanted to read the entire book again, I probably even wouldn't do that because I would just skim it to the points where it's, you know, it, it gets to the interesting part or it gets to the part where it's talking, you know, in depth about this thing and, you know, maybe reread that and get to those points. So it it, it was just a, a, a different experience for me because I didn't feel as though I needed to sit down and read just that book, the entire book from beginning to end before I did anything else. Um, I took it more as if it was, you know, an episode on TV where next week you'll have another episode, you know, well, tomorrow I'd read another chapter of it. And, you know, and between then I would read seven chapters in seven different books. So, you know, it didn't, uh, it didn't weigh on me as if I were reading it all at once. So let's talk quickly about the the covers. We've done this about all the other books. Um, yeah, this is not as exciting. Like the Paralander covers, there were some really funny and and interesting uh, variations on the covers. I will note this though: the covers get ugly. <laughs> it, there's a a 2005 audiobook cover that just looks. It's just ugly and it's nothing against the artist. The art is fine. It's just, it's just a guy with lightning striking his hands. I think it's meant to be Zeus because that's actually one of the, um, yeah. one of the motifs in the, in the book. And there's another one with a bear rising up above a scientist and, but it just doesn't look great. Um, <laughs> the cover that I had was the one where there's like a lush planet on one side and a barren landscape on the other side and you have a man in red robe and a man in blue robe and they're both kind of just looking at each other and that that cover also that's the one i had when i was growing up when i had the the trilogy was given to me um and i never understood it because there <laughs> there's nothing like that in 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 the book but it does kind of there's a meta metaphorical uh a, a metaphorical 
meaning behind it. But the red and, and blue cloaks, that's 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 Ransom and Merlin. Merlin. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know exactly what's what's going on on that cover. And it might be something I just missed. But um, that one is from the mid-80s. And then they use that one for actually a number of covers uh, from that. Uh, your cover that I saw you holding up to the camera earlier uh that one's from the later uh there's a in the 60s and 70s then yeah and it's macmillan publishing that one i that might be my favorite cover of all of it's, them it's interesting because it actually has some interesting elements to it that if you really look at them there's there's a little bit more meaning to it it has uh the the central figure is this hideous looking no pun intended mask um that sort of takes up the visual the the main visual like when you look at it that's what you see this weird mask that actually has a hole in the top of its head and if you three-dimensionalize the mask you realize that above where its ears would be there are actually holes there too so it's it's this very strange looking mask with you know holes in its head, um, and surrounding it are these interesting, almost like f- four point stars. But I'll get back to them in just a second. They're sort of distended, um, almost like like they're being stretched. Uh, below that is a, a castle, or I guess it could be the college, um, and then sort of like a lawn (laughs) and the on the foreground of the lawn are three chess pieces that are in white almost like as if they were invisible or glass um but they have shadows which is kind of interesting and the shadows i've always thought of them as being sketches and that's like they just look like someone sketched it in chalk but i yeah I mean, yeah, the, but the, they have a, the pieces, that meaning I understand, but the, and, yeah, go ahead. But yeah, but they have a, a weight to them because mm-hmm. they have a shadow. Um, then there's an easel <laughs> with, with a painting on the easel. And the interesting thing about the painting on the easel is it's, uh, it, it looks like there's a planet and perhaps some moons or other types of satellites. It could actually be representing movement of these satellites and on the easel on the picture on the easel uh, are replicated those sort of four pointed stars that are sort of extended that when you take it all in i think they're supposed to represent almost like uh, the arms and legs of people that are being extended and if you think to yourself well isn't don't people have heads well you know metaphorically not all of them do (laughs) in the the literally in the book some of them don't so yeah and the 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 king it looks like a king queen and knight that are uh the the glass or the invisible or the sketched things that have shadows i'm like okay well those could represent you know pieces of a game that someone is playing that they don't consider them anything except pieces in a game yet they have shadows 
You know, they have a this weight to them that you can't deny. So even if you say that they they don't really exist or they don't really play into um, the uh, you know what is actually going on, they do because their shadows are there. So you know, I, why is the picture on an easel? I don't know. Um, what it, you know, what's the big deal with the mask? You know, why is it a mask instead of it could have just been a human head with holes in it or something like that? Um, you know, why the extended headless human like figures? I, I don't know. So the, the human like <laughs> figures, though, I never consider them to be human like figures until you said something here. Uh, and now I kind of wonder, like, they look like uh, it looks like they're extended because they're in motion. And it looks like, you know, the arms are outstretched, the legs are downstretched, mm-hmm. like they're flying or, yeah. or being pulled upward or something like that. I do wonder, though, if they are meant to represent the uh, the visiting gods. Oh, it could be, yeah. Um, yeah, they could be coming down. Yeah. Instead of going up. But they, they look like, and I've done sketches similar to this uh, in some of my cartooning that no one will ever see, but of <laughs> uh, spirit creatures that, that look like that. Although mine had a head, but like I was, and actually one of them was re- when I first started drawing like that, it was a report about a book I had read about a woman who had dealt with demon possession. And so oh. I wrote a visual report and that's, if you add a head in between those outstretched arms, that's the way I visualized the, the demon coming out of, of her. Is, okay. is that kind of a very simplified minimalist shape. But this is why I like the cover so much. Like you actually had a lot more depth to your thought about the cover than I did, <laughs> but that's why I like it is there's just so many things where you're like, why is that there? Yeah. And then as you ask yourself that you're either going to think about it or you're not going to think about it. And if you think about it, there's a lot to it. Um, I do like there's another cover that I was looking at that's uh, from a dust jacket from a a late 60s uh, hardcover, and it's just a hand holding a lightning bolt. And it's very minimalist. It was there's it's bright, big, bold shapes should say bright, bright red and then a black lightning bolt that's being held by this bright red hand. And that one's kind of cool. Um and then as you go back further, there's a couple of them that actually do use the motif of the head, which is one of the most striking visuals for me that I remember from when I did first read this is just the, um, well, the decapitated the head. head which yeah. There's some really interesting things going on with that. That tortured yeah. planet, by the way, this cover, I don't understand at all. It is, <laughs> it looks like. So along the bottom, there's kind of these sketched figures, some of them holding what could be pitchforks. So suggesting you know, so there's red and white, suggesting like a spiritual battle. Uh, and then there's a red planet and eyes floating in the darkness. And then there's a satellite. Like Just, a metal satellite? Like a round metal satellite. Just there in the, in the middle uh, and then there's these paint splatters. I love it. It is an incredible looking cover, but again, I don't see really how this 
other than, you know, the spirit eyes and the spiritual battle at the bottom. Um, I don't see how this fits into what this book is at all. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's uh, some earlier hardcover ones. One of them has like the, um, uh, you know, a, a college building. And then the other, the other two have like trees, which forests are important and the outdoors is important to the plot, but that's, yeah, it just, as you're looking at some of these, just, wow. I, I, I understand why they did the bear one later because the bear is actually something that happens in the book. Everything, all these other covers are kind of this allegorical, Hey, I'm just going to, you know, do something that kind of links thematically. Uh, Oh, and then finally there is this one. It's a Collier from 1962. And it has a picture of a man with a goatee and a Fulanchu mustache. And he's balding and he has the Captain Picard hair style and a red (laughs) cape and a pitchfork. And he's holding hands with a woman who has angel wings. And so it does kind of capture, you know, Mark and Jane, at least where they're, where their loyalties lie at first and, or where their loyalties could go to. Right. And (laughs) so, wow. Yeah. Uh, again, I, not as exciting of a cover set as like Paralandra or, uh, even, even on the silent planet, but no, definitely got some so, emotions out of me. For so here's a, me. here's, here, here's, a, <laughs> here's a question that I would ask you. Yeah. If, if you were given that hideous strength and someone said, basically carte blanche, we will produce this any any way that you want to do it what do you think would be the best representation media representation of that hideous strength that would be able to actually portray it as accurately as possible so you're not talking about the cover now you're talking about like doing a graphic novel or a film or a tv show yeah yeah I don't know what would be best, but I actually have a note here. There are certain parts of this book that I can totally picture being done by the BBC in the mid eighties. Okay. Like the, I can picture the settings. I can picture even the sound design of, you know, a doctor who, or, you know, Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes, or (laughs) the, um, you know, the the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, uh, Mm -hmm. that they did. And, uh, just, (laughs) this kind of stark sound design where it's just voices, you know, but um, I could picture Tom Baker as, as Merlin even. And it's those scenes (laughs) where Merlin shows up and it's kind of got some humor to it, but it also has, you know, some arrogance to it. And yeah. uh, And and even the scenes then with the, the tramp in the, where they think he's Merlin and Mm. the the humor there. And I just picture it with that shot on video minimal effects. There's, there's no effects going on here. And that's, this is probably his most filmable book in a lot of ways, because so much of it is, is just being, uh, inferred, you know? So like, even when 
the gods are coming, it's, it's brought out through emotions, you know, and you could just have the people sitting in the room and they're, and, and yeah, I'm just picturing it in that style. Uh, and is that the best way to do it? No, (laughs) that is not the best way. It is just in my, in my head as I'm picturing it happening, that I just had this vibe of, of that mid eighties, maybe late seventies, uh, BBC drama. <laughs> and, yeah. But to actually make it pop to people, like if, if, if someone really handed it to you and said, you know, we would, we would like to make some millions of dollars on this or, you know, at least re- return a tidy sum and they left it in your hands. Obviously, you can't go back to the 70s and 80s. And no, produce it no. In <laughs> but what would you do now, like right now? I would consider doing like a four film series or a 13 episode TV series that is out of the silent planet through that hideous strength. Okay. Out of the silent planet would get one quarter of the running time. Paralandra would get one quarter of the running time and that his strength would get one half of the running time. And it would just, you find the right person to play ransom, which I don't know who it would be, but Tom Hanks, right? Um, no, (laughs) (laughs) but it would need to be someone who can play a, an intellectual, you know, and it's not, you're not looking for an action star. Although I guess, you know, maybe a Daniel Craig or someone like that could, could be the, the guy. Um, and what's nice about it. And this is something I, I wonder if C.S. Lewis, when he wrote out of the silent planet, if he was planning ahead in such a way that he realized I have these two villains of the, out of the silent planet, and this one's going to do this. And this one's going to do that. And I really doubt it. I think it was one of those things where in Paralandra, he's like, okay, I'm going to bring Weston in for Paralandra. And then yeah. for out of the, uh, for that hideous strength, it makes sense to bring in divine who's changed his name to Feverstone because yeah. you also have ransom who's changed his name to Fisher King. <laughs> and that's the, that's the name because that's who he is, but it's also the name because when he inherited the stuff that he has, uh, he was told you have to inherit the, the title as well. Right. And, and, and then build it up as this is his character arc. And I would, I really would focus in on him. I would have these other surrounding characters who would come, would come into it. Um, you know, sees if, if I was doing like a 13 episode, uh, TV show, episode seven, half of that episode would be about Jane and Mark, you know, just to introduce those characters. Um, but that's how I would envision it. And that's honestly also, if I were doing a, a comic book series, you know, I, I would take it that way as well. And just, but you have to, this is the thing. Ransom is the through line in this trilogy. You cannot exclude out of the silent planet. And, you know, and unfortunately for me, Paralandra would be the the pinnacle of what's going on here, because that's, as I said before, that is quite possibly my second favorite novel of all time. Not quite possibly. Wow. Till We Have Faces is my favorite novel of all time, and 
Paralandra is my second favorite of all time. And we're not just talking about favorite from C.S. Lewis. It's favorites, just period. Of all time, yeah. yeah. See, if, if I were if I were given all three of them, I would probably start where that hideous strength starts <clears throat> and introduce the characters. And since you can't – I mean, it, it, you're – you have Ransom as the through line. So, you know, you can't produce these the same way that they were produced as books because you had one book and you're reading Out of the Silent Planet and, oh, no, will Ransom survive this? <sighs> he did. Wow, that's great. Oh, here's another book. We have Paralandra. Oh, no, will Ransom survive this? Oh, okay, good. He does. Whew. Oh, no. oh, now we have Hideous Strength. And... You can't emotionally inject that dread into the character three times because you know he will survive. So what I would do is I would start hitting his strength and get to Ransom. And then, so Ransom, why are you anybody? Well, here's my story. And then... From there, you would be able to hopefully weave the story and give pertinent parts of the, the earlier stories as the rest of the novel plays out, as the rest of the, um, the, the production plays out. So over the course of it, you would get all three stories, but it would be woven into the, uh, the, the bigger story, which would be that hideous strength. Yeah. I, again, when you, you're right about the the peril of the main character, you just you know, and, and yeah. Paralandra did that. Remember, I actually as I was listening to our Paralandra episode, I I was talking yeah. about like, oh, what, what's going to happen to him? And then you realize, oh no, actually in chapter three, yeah, <laughs> he he's had his adventure already, and he's back yeah, he's, from it. He's he's fine, out. you know. He's yeah. now he's bleeding, but he's, he's fine, you know. Diffused that bomb, <laughs> but at the same time. Uh, you don't know his ultimate fate. And mm-hmm. in that hideous strength, we actually get it. And it's an interesting fate. And I think doing it either way, um, one of the things you want to do is really build up the whole, th- what is going to happen to him? You know, and you, you maybe if you did it my way toward the beginning, you'd have some flash forwards or some things where uh, you're realizing his fate is nothing like you would think he's not just going to survive. He's going to change, you know, and, and how is yeah. that going to work? And then also how does this conflict with these two key, two key people um, on the video series that I was working on when I did the Paralandra one, I realized the, the main characters from out of the silent planet are in Paralandra. It's, it's ransom. It's uh, Weston. It's CS Lewis himself mm-hmm. as the writer. And it's Oyarsa. Or however you say his name, but you know those four yeah. key characters from Out of the Silent Planet—they're in Paralandra, yeah. and they're the only characters in Paralandra except for the woman. And then, yeah. uh, you know, it's just eventually. Though. And then in that hideous strength, you you have the conclusion of the conflict that started with these two guys, basically hitting him over the head and throwing him on a spaceship and kidnapping <laughs> him. And yeah. because they did that you end up with this conflict structure that, that just kind of builds itself. Now 
the final end doesn't necessarily come down to, you know, a lightsaber duel between them or anything like that. But because of just that, that small little moment, and this is maybe our, one of our weak connections here is uh, just that small moment at the beginning of out of the silent planet where he chooses to help a woman who her son didn't come back from work in time. Right. And so he's like, I will go help. Okay. Because he did that. They knock him over the head because they knock him over the head. He goes to the planet and he's able to learn the language because he knows the language. He's the only human who can be sent to Paralandra to help in that whole setting and that whole situation. And Mm -hmm. because that happens, that's, that's great. But then when he returns home, he is the only person who can really be the Fisher King. He is the only person alive who can quote unquote lead the resistance against the enemy in right. And, uh, and so that conflict comes to a head with Feverstone divine coming into it as, you know, one of the driving forces. And it is this kind of, I think accidental, but serendipitous complexity of plot that uh, again, I would say you need to read that hideous strength to get the ending because there's some really cool stuff going on with Ransom's character. But once you're done with that hideous strength, if you put it away and never come back to it, you're fine. I, I, I'm convinced. And if you never read that hideous strength, it's okay. Because if you read Paralandra and you got to the end of that, you can stop right there and don't worry about it. Cause it is, yeah. it's, it's great in its conclusion. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 the density of it, especially for an American reader. Um, that it's it's just it's it can be daunting, and unless you're ready to dig in, you just you might as well not. You just wait. Just wait. So one of the things I noticed this most recent time was there's a lot of duality going on in this book. There's um, Jane and Mark and Jane just wants to continue her life as is and doesn't want to be affected by things from outside, including her husband. She thought that getting married would just mean living life as usual, just living with him. And Mark wants to be included he wants to be on the inner circle. He wants to have people around him. Uh, she gets confronted with the awesome. She gets confronted with the, well, the awfulness of good, the awe full being a W E full of awe. And yeah. he's confronted with the awful spelled a W F U L, which is just <laughs> awful. And, and both of them, have these conversion experiences but they come from different sides and there's there's some duality there there's duality with um ransom and and merlin and and how he is you know the the fisher king and the the modern going backwards and merlin is the medieval coming forward and together <laughs> I, I use this maybe too many times, but it's chocolate and peanut butter and together they, they taste great. You know, they, they yeah. work well together. Um, you have obviously NICE versus the company and NICE is, is 
when I picture them and think about like their offices and their buildings and everything, it's, it's gray and it's concrete, but then you have the good guys with ransom and it's, there's, there's animals just living in their built their, their house. You know, there's, yeah. there's a bear that lives in their house and you have, uh, yeah. So you have the modern world versus the fairy tale, which he calls this a modern fairy tale, um, on purpose. <laughs> and the reason he calls it that is to just get your forgiveness for starting out slow because that's how modern fair. That's how fairy tales start is. Yeah. They once start upon a time. Once there was something time. very boring. Yep. And then something exciting <laughs> happened that changed their life, you know? The um, end. So that was something that I, I noticed this time around, but then there's also just like you said, there's moral, moral ideas that resound still, today and and ways of you know removing morality from the picture completely and there's 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 big ideas that you can appreciate even now which is one of those things that elevates it beyond just being homework you can read this and get something out of it it's applicable to modern life yeah definitely yeah, like I said, I, I found a passage that was uh, well, one of the passages that I made vast, <laughs> uh, made sure that I, I, I kept the uh, the uh, the sense of it here. And um, someone says, you know, is, is the left or right papers that are going to print all this rot and Miss Hardcastle, the hideous character says both, honey, both. Don't you understand anything? Isn't it absolutely essential to keep a fierce left and a fierce right, both on their toes and each terrified of the other? That's how we get things done. Any opposition to the nice, the N-I-C-E, is represented as a left racket in the right papers and a right racket in the left papers. If it's properly done, you get each side outbidding the other in support of us to refute the enemy slanders. Of course, we're non-political. The real power always is. And there's more. Yeah. But yeah. that's just, it's just telling where he knew, I mean, 75 years ago in Great Britain, you know, his his understanding of the political structure back then. What I mean, it's Winston Churchill times, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... It's it's yeah, World War II. He wrote it in 1943, or at least started writing it. The book itself, his introduction is written in 1943. It's mm-hmm. published in 1945. I think it was December or something like that. Um, but I, one of the things I'm just struck by is he's writing this in the midst of some of the worst evils of human history. It's happening yeah. right then. Yeah. And I wonder, though, how different things would have been if he had had the opportunity to do one more revision after Hiroshima because Hiroshima was, I think 1945, it would have been before the book was published, but as I'm reading it and they're, you know, they're talking about these different things and, and all these things, I wonder like science changed the, the world in that moment with Hiroshima. And just, I wonder how the ideas that he had of science uh, versus, uh, I guess, versus theism in some ways, but science versus uh, morality and and the different things. Um, 
how if he would have taken an even stronger stance. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. But that's, that was the world he was writing in. And, and right. that was the world he was writing about and the world he was writing to. Mm-hmm. And it just, yeah, but it still resounds. It still resounds. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting how he could straddle that, you know, start the, the book, the concept of the book is world war two, or maybe even, well, for him, it wouldn't be pre-world war two. It would be world war two. So, you have that whole concept going forward and then, oh, the war is over, you know? Okay. So how do I now take what I'm writing and speak to this new generation, which changed in the blink of an eye? Yeah. And, you know, if, if you, if you do the math on some of the, like the dates and things like that, I think it comes out as as if he were writing as if this were taking place in 1949, I believe. So he's writing it, you know, in the the near future. Yeah, he's definitely writing it about post World War II. Yeah. Even though it got published and World War II was still happening. Yeah, or 46 maybe something like that. But you know, it it's it's quite a, a an accomplishment for him to have done what he did, you know, to, to write a novel that probably he was assuming that it was going to speak to this war generation. And now it can speak to this post-war generation. It can speak to us 75 years later because we're still going through political nonsense and, you know, even anticipating the cold war in the sense of the technology you know, this technology that's hanging over our heads. And, you know, the he didn't, I don't think he goes to the extent of, you know, the military buildup of, of atomic and, and, you know, that type of weaponry. But it's still that same, it's, that's the tower that's being built, the technology. In the book, it's the technology for the, you know, leaving, leaving bodies and becoming, you know, transhuman. And in the reality that we saw, it was it was something different. But, you know, what happens when 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 bombs strike, it's like you have to do something to protect human beings, to make human beings get to the next place to become transhuman. You know, and and I think it's when you when you can see it in similar you know, you were talking about dualities. I think maybe this is an unintended duality that he, that just came out of it because he's just that so much of a, a spiritual writer when he's coming to these uh, these issues that he's able to to speak to that next generation. Um, you know, sort of like how Tolkien spoke of of you know the technological in a war sense when he's talking about the, the Lord of the Rings, you know, here we have technological in a, in a peace sense and, uh, and that type of, yeah, that type of buildup where, you know, it's, it's something where in, in Lord of the Rings, you didn't really see what was going on in Mordor. 
you know, it was huge gates and it was mountains and, you know, it was pits that they were doing things in. And it was it was hidden and out of the way. It's not like they were holding up a flag. We're making more, you know, orcs over here. But it was it was that build up. And here you have a similar thing where it's all hidden behind, you know, the purchase of land and, you know, the, behind a door here and, you know, and, and, and behind these secrets and, you know, even behind the this awful sense of of reality where everything for them is a tool, you know, politics is a tool and government is a tool and even the the, the school system is a tool, you know, and it's 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 that type of of feel to it, I think. You mentioned the Tower of Babel, and that's actually what the title refers to. So mm-hmm. like the on the title page anyway of, of my edition, uh, my hardcover edition, it's yeah. that hideous strength of modern fairy tale for grownups. And then it has this quote from Sir David Lindsay, the shadow of that hideous strength, sex mile and more it is of length. And it's describing the Tower of Babel and the strength is actually referring to a fortress or a tower uh, yeah. rather than actual like muscle strength. But right. it's actually referring to a structure yeah a so the shadow of structure. the hideous hideous tower stretched six miles and more and that that was the 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 physical representation of its its hideousness was that it was it was so huge that its shadow covered that much you know i mean i, I think it's it, it's interesting for Lindsay who wrote back in the, I believe the 1600s, 1500s. 1500s, yeah. Yeah. And to, to visualize, you know, the tower of Babel must have been so immense that it would have a huge shadow, especially at, uh, you know, morning and evening time. And what that would mean to a community that is, you know, quote unquote, under the shadow of that type of government that type of, of system, that world system. And that's where we have this mundane the life happening in the shadow of all this evil stuff that's mm-hmm. starting to build up. And you have Jane and, and Mark being, being pulled into it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I also think it is interesting though, that this title refers to another tower. So we have the dark tower that he started writing and then this is another where he actually finished this one. But, right. And and this actually has a lot more, I feel, in some ways, uh, of a it's a lot closer to the Dark Tower in, in the the tone and, and mood of some of the things that's going on than, than his yeah. other two books. Yeah, you so. could definitely see the Dark Tower happening here at, what is it, Edgestowe? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe... In, in just a, a different, you know, the, a different part of the campus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, and maybe that, maybe that was the type of thing that he was thinking of. And this tower, this dark tower, tower, perhaps in shadow, and then just borrowed that concept and said, well, I'm going to take that quote and just use it metaphorically for hideous strength because I'm not going to use it in the dark tower. Because he's not using the Dark Tower. <laughs> exactly. He's letting yeah. that go. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so I have a couple more things I want to make sure that we talk about. One is Mr. Bultitude. Oh, yes. Who, you know, Merlin could be considered the the hero of the piece because he goes in and goes into the enemy stronghold. and But then you have Mr. Bultitude who gets prophesied. <laughs> There's this interesting moment where, where uh, Merlin prophesied about Mr. Bultitude that he would be the the bear that did the greatest thing in the history of all bears <laughs> except for some other bear that none of them had ever heard of before right <laughs> and then he goes and the ending of this book there's some horrific stuff going on and when i say if you stay with the bad side you're going to get mauled by a bear maybe mauled by a bear <laughs> if you're lucky there's some yeah. awful fates for people who are following the the evil side of of this conflict and Mr. Bultitude is a a part of that and there's these weird scenes where it's like here's these two people who are just sent out to go and capture animals and they happen to notice a bear going by and like well we already got our quota but let's grab the bear too i think they'll want that hmm. that'll be great so they they shoot Mr. Bultitude and they have a hard time getting him up on the truck but they get him there and and then uh when it all happens. It all goes down. Mr. Bultitude is a part of all of that. But it is interesting to me as well, though, that you have some chapters in this book are written from the bear's perspective. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because <laughs> it's not a perspective that you immediately come by because obviously we're human. Um, so, yeah, that's. That's an interesting – it's almost like, you know, every once in a while in, in a, a TV show or a, or a, you know, movie or something, you know, like you'll have that the, – the camera is the eye and you're, you're looking out of the eye of this thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, oh, well, what's going on? You know, why am I so low to the ground? And so, then <laughs> you look in the mirror and it's a dog or it's a cat yeah, or something. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole – conceit of it is that the the person has turned into an animal or something and and you want to have that surprise for the the person as well so it you know to to have that in the book and especially with with uh, mr bultitude who you know i i mean it, it it might sound silly to have this you know weird bear character in the middle of the book but it, when you read the book he really is so many people's favorite character in the book you know <laughs> because he just has that that really interesting sense to his his character and and um, he's presented I, as something non-human he's presented as something that does not understand personhood you know and there's just this very uh, you, you almost feel like c.s lewis is like i'm gonna stretch my muscles here and i'm gonna write as an animal that doesn't understand that's, that's not as as much as possible i'm gonna write a non-anthropomorphized animal it, yeah, as much as possible. And then when people say this book is too long, I don't care. I'm going to leave the bear chapters in and we're going to take the bear perspective and yep. we're going to we're going to follow him. <laughs> and there's a really interesting turn near the end of the book where it's talking about Mr. Bultitude and it always puts him as in, in a, as a male pronoun throughout throughout the book. So it says, um he had been recognized at once as the same man 
whom he, meaning Mr. Bultitude, had sat beside in the, in the blue room. And then later on in the same paragraph, it makes the transition from he to it. And it made all the cheer that a beast can make a man. He laid his hand on its head and whispered in its ear, and its dark mind was filled with excitement, as though some long-forbidden forgotten pleasure were suddenly held out to it. And all of a sudden it becomes an it. And it's, it's not that it's trying to take anything away from the bear, I think. It's to, to dehumanize it to a point where, yes, this is a character, but remember, the humans are the important characters because they're the ones made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And as much as Mr. Bultitude plays his part in this story and how bears play their part in the story of the world, um, uh, you know, Elisha, <laughs> I mean, in the Bible they're mentioned. So, you know, it, but just in terms of phrase and just the way he's talking about Mr. Bultitude, he changes him from a he to an it. And I, I circled how many it's are in just this one sentence after he defines him as a he. And it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think eight. And a quick count here. And it's it's like eight times after calling him a he in the same paragraph, he calls him an it. And it's just really interesting to the way he he brings these characters to finality you know almost every single character in the book has this end scene and it's you know it, that's mr bultitude i think that's very close to his last mention in the book um but yeah just a, a fantastic character i think if we were doing the remember we did a uh, our hundred greatest characters in fiction uh-huh I think for our hundredth episode with Dr. Jace, um, I think if we had to do that over again, I think there would be a lot of different, you know, just because of, or well, just because of new things have, have cropped right. up I mean, since then. Eight but, years have passed. <laughs> yeah. But, but old stuff too, you know, Mr. Bultitude. And, you know, when we reread these great books, sometimes you're just like, I completely forgot about that character. I'm going to add him or something comes to light where it's like, you know, well, I, I really thought the author was going to do something better with that. And so I put it high on my list. And now in retrospect, I think, I don't know if it would make the list. (laughs) (laughs) Aquaman. Anyway. um, So one of those things that happens here, though, is because he's he's including the animal kingdom. He's especially with Mr. Bultitude. But then he's also going beyond humanity into these these things that are that are grander and, and bigger and, and you have, um, you know, Aries and, and Venus come and you have these, these ideas of, you know, Godhood, but they aren't gods, but they are, um, they come and when they come, they bring with them the, their spirit. And so you have this, this scene and, and I, I love the scene where you have them being visited and this is where I think I I'm positive. I read this in high school because I feel like I remember reading this scene sitting in my grandma's house um, during high school, but um, where you have 
like all the emotions and, and impulses. And as Mars passes by, as Aries passes by, uh, they're feeling like they're, they want to go to war. They want to, they like, they want to fight, you know, let's, let's yeah. go fight. And, uh, and then you have, uh, something that's kind of, you know, this beautiful happening for them. And, and then over in, on the other side, you have some pretty awful things happening for the, for the, for the baddies. But then, uh, that big scene is what I consider the most martial scene. You know, that's where all the violence is happening and you have, the animals running amok and you have Merlin around and you have um, the big battle at the end is, is happening there. But when that's done, you move over to where the company of, of good is and Venus is coming too close there and all the animals are, are getting twitipated. And, yeah. uh, and this is how, you know, Mark and Jane, they, they come back together and it's, they're, they're, perspective about each other has been changed and they're actually in some ways especially mark is feeling bad because his perspective has changed and he realized like i've been a fool um but yeah venus is coming to take ransom away and she's coming a little bit closer than he expected her to and so you know there's another bear in town and and they're flirting with each other in, in, in the kitchen, you know, and McPhee has some great lines in, in that scene. It's, there's some great humor there, but yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the amazingly interesting things that you don't even understand is happening through the whole book is the it, almost personification of of Great Britain as mm-hmm. Logris, mm-hmm. you know, and this this word that we don't really have to to represent, you know, almost the like the the spirit of the nation, um, and how even that is dealt with, um, you know, and how it it's obviously it's it's a fantasy novel, it's science fiction, and you know how C.S. Lewis was was interested in, you know, the healing of the nation itself and the, the way he, he goes about uh, weaving that into the book, especially the last half of the book. Um, and, you know, even inventing the, the what was it, the, the seven bears of Logris or something yeah, like that, yeah. of which Mr. Bultitude was one of them. Um, and you never, you know, where's where's the other six (laughs) (laughs) i have uh, i have a letter that i marked in in the book the letters of c.s lewis where he says the seven bears and the atlantean circle in that hideous strength are pure inventions of my own filling the same purpose in the narrative that noises off would in in a stage play numenor is a misspelling of numenor which like the true west is a fragment from a vast private mythology invented by professor jrr tolkien at the time we all hoped that a good deal of that mythology would soon become public through a romance which the professor was then contemplating since then the hope has receded (laughs) (laughs) and did you did you get this it's very late in the book it's like page 360 and you think to yourself, is this a trilogy or can we count these as actual part of the Narnia series? Because very late in the book, 
the same afternoon, Mother mm. Dimble and the three girls were upstairs in the big room, which occupied nearly the whole top floor of one wing at the manor, and which the director, Ransom, the director called the wardrobe. Yeah, and later on, uh, they actually mention animals talking as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's this great spiritual push to get the innocent out of there before, well, before the, the tower crumbles, before you know, earthquakes strike the land. It's very apocalyptic then. And yeah. it's very Old Testament in some ways. Like Jane even says, did he have to destroy everyone who was there? And then you realize, well, he didn't destroy everyone. He destroyed the people who chose to stay there. He destroyed the people who were there because they wanted to be. But so-and-so got a note or about his father being on death's door. So he had to leave town. And so-and-so just had an idea that I should leave town. And so-and-so had his cat say, get out, and a goat say, get out, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, and they... To the point where he mentions that the idea was um, they would say, no, I don't want to hear the story about how you left, (laughs) how you left town, because it just became such a a part of conversation that everyone was just talking about. Well, for me, I left because blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So uh, the one thing that I wanted to make sure we talked about, and this is a major Really, it's a major theme in, in all of these books, and and it's a major theme in C.S. Lewis's own life and just the way that he went about his conversion and things, too. And that is this, this idea of obedience and this idea of, of submitting yourself to God's will and submitting yeah. yourself to, to a Lord, to the Lord. Yeah. And Jane does not want to submit herself. And... I was reading somewhere where where someone said that actually Jane's conversion is in some way similar to Lewis's in the language that he uses when he's talking about both of them. Um, And Jane just wants to be left alone. She once went to Sunday school. She once understood all these things, but she's outgrown these, you know, the fairy tale idea of, of God. And now, um, you know, she's talking to Ransom and Ransom says, you know, you need to submit yourself in obedience. And she just bristles against this word obedience. Yeah. And so Mark is having all these horrible things happen to him. She's in the middle of the most peaceful, blessed place you know, in, in England. And and she's bristling against it because she doesn't want to submit to anything beyond herself. And um and that's that's an idea that's that's there in all of his books where you know Paralander is all about obedience and yeah. and not taking that first step into sin and that hideous strength or i mean uh, out of the silent planet it, obedience isn't quite as strong of a theme but that's because all of the characters in in out of the silent planet they're kind of you know they're doing their thing and then they're just getting pulled along you know, as, as things flow and as things happen, but, right. but here you have ransom who has ultimately, you know, said, this is, I am submitting myself in obedience. And because he does that, he has this place of honor and, and you have Merlin come and, and Merlin, once he recognizes who ransom is, he, you know, he bows to him and you have all of the rest of the, the group there and everyone who is over on the other side, it's all about themselves. And it's, mm-hmm. there's no, 
obedience happening there. It's yeah, you know, they they submit to no one, they submit to nothing, and they reap what they have sown when when they do so. All right. Yeah. Um obedience is it's one of those things where it's it can be so difficult. But when you put yourself in that submissive role and you do those things, it's like the easiest thing in the world. You just had to humiliate yourself to do it, you know, <laughs> or humble yourself. Yeah, humble yourself more. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, before you do that, it's like, I am not going to do that. You know, you can't make me do that. And once you get to the point of obedience and you can understand the context of it and the reason for it, it's like, it's, it has nothing to do with me. It's, it's almost like I'm harmonizing instead of making noise while someone else is trying to sing. You know, how, how ridiculous of me to do that and how natural it feels to do the other, you know, where it's, it's just like, why, why would I have any problem with that until you, you have to take yourself outside of yourself and, and, you know, most of the time it's, it's, it's God doing that mm-hmm. <laughs> for you. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I usually say, you know, humble yourself or you will be humiliated. You know, the 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 root of both words come from the same core. You know, the H-U-M, hum, of humble and humility. It's also in the word hummus, the, the word for dirt, not the stuff we eat. <laughs> but it's it's also the root word for human. You know, it means the dirt. You know, to humble yourself is to put yourself in the dirt. What What's a human? A human is a dirt person. Human being is dirt living. It's a living piece of dirt. That's what God made us out of, you know. So to humiliate, to be humiliated is to be pushed into the dirt. To humble yourself is to put yourself in a position where you are close to the dirt, realizing that that's what we are. We're human. We're dirt walking around. And when we humble ourselves and humiliate and or, or are humiliated, we're just being reminded of what we are. We're the dirt. And when we can do that, then we can obey. And it's nothing. You know, it's it's there's not there's no nothing in the way at that point. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit, and that is the head. <laughs> yeah. That is the most striking part of this book, I think. Definitely the biggest science fiction idea. Um, when they visit the head and speak to the head, here's this disembodied head that's got juices getting pumped into it, and it has no muscle control, but it speaks and you think it's this great sci-fi idea 
and this is maybe one of the biggest spoilers we could possibly do for this book, but you think it's this big sci-fi idea of, uh, oh, they've kept this head alive, and now this thing is giving them instructions, and then you find out, nope, it is not the same person. There is... Doctor Who. It's, yeah, it's a mouthpiece. It's a mouthpiece for a another style of being another type of being and yeah um and just the revelation there and and the description there and the description of of jane's dreams about this thing and yeah um, i just I, again i i really can't stress enough i feel like this book is definitely worth reading unfortunately because of the size it's not the kind of thing that you're going to go to multiple times over right. and over again although i have <laughs> and it's the overlapping styles i think can be a little troublesome because you have this you know home life and then you have the the, the college life and then you have this horror element and then you and have then a you bear have the, <laughs> the the fantasy element yeah. and the sci-fi element and the you know there's just so many different things but you've you've read this type of stuff before you know, Thor 337 to 367 or whatever it was, you know, it had sci- science fiction and mythology and superheroes and, you know, space sci- science fiction and it, and fantasy. And it had all this stuff in it and it, everyone loved it. You know, it's it's this huge run of comic books that people I mean, they, they made one of the movies about it, Ragnarok, you know, so if you can sort of put yourself in that position and say this has many little overlapping things you know so give it a try dig into those things when you're presented with them but don't be like oh man i wanted more of the you know this or that or the other thing and just dig into it if it's not your thing stop read it at a different time never read it you know it doesn't it's not that much of a big deal but some of the the stuff that's in this book is still pertinent to nowadays um you know even the the concept of the head you know it's metaphorically there's so much there that you can still you know use that as as something where you can understand i mean it's not scripture so you can allegorize this as much as you want to and and, you know don't have to worry about you know it defining itself um so but go ahead yeah i was gonna say i i wanted you're saying like you you can enjoy it or not or whatever but um a letter from january 1946 to sister penelope uh he wrote that hideous strength has been unanimously damned by all reviewers so (laughs) people weren't necessarily enjoying it back then although i'm sure that there was a lot more people who did like it than he than he at that point very early on in in its life it was but then he also uh we didn't talk about some of the influences but charles williams was a big influence for this book um some people call it a charles williams novel written by c.s lewis i have not read much by charles williams uh when i say much I i don't think i've read anything by by charles williams um i think i've read all of his novels and i I feel like i've tried reading it but i'm 
I don't think I ever finished one. Uh, After he, this, you would he he sort of slices it a little thinner, you know, so he doesn't have all the concepts happening at the same time. Okay, but it's very much yes, it's very much like if you like just took a couple elements out of that hideous strength, you would have a a pretty good uh, Charles Williams, uh, you know, understanding of of the type of thing that Charles Williams he sort of like laser focused on one thing, like like one thing was. Uh, this concept of these animals that kept appearing in Great Britain. And they were like these idealized animals. I won't get into the entire thing, but that was like the main point of that book, these idealized animals and how they, you know, how they were understood by the people in the, in the novels. He gets very rich in his uh, characterizations. So you have very rich characterizations like you have in here. You know, you have what, I don't even know, 20 different characters in that hideous strength that you sort of have to, you know, get a handle on. But it's not difficult if you just, you know, I mean, if, if it was a TV show, uh, I don't even know, I didn't watch Game of Thrones, but, uh, you know, I imagine like uh, Stranger Things. You know, easily there's there's 20 characters mm-hmm. that you can, you know, peel off the top of your head if, if you watch the show, if you like the show. And if you want to get into this book and you're not going to just get into it and just say, oh, this is a struggle, but I'll struggle through it. Just take it for what it is and enjoy the different parts. Yeah. You know, so another uh, influence. And this is from his preface. He says, I believe that one of the central ideas of this tale came into my head from conversations I had with a scientific colleague sometime before I met a rather similar suggestion in the works of Mr. Olaf Stapledon. Mm -hmm. If I am mistaken in this, Mr. Stapledon is so rich in invention that he can well afford to lend, and I admire his invention, though not his philosophy, so much that I should feel no shame to borrow. And so that's also a... uh, He did that in in, uh, Out of the Silent Planet as well, where he definitely gave some credit to to hg wells and right um, and olaf stapledon is fantastic uh prolific writer science, science fiction, fiction writer yeah who, fantasy in the early part of the 20th century uh definitely one of those golden age guys so yeah yeah good stuff all right steve you have anything else you want to make sure we talk about before we shut this down i think that's and like i told you before we we could completely bore and turn off all of our listeners, but we could do an episode for each chapter. It's just that rich. And there's just so many literary things. There's, there's one thing where I don't really even know why, but three specific different times during the book. Let me see if I can find it real quick. He references um, the constellation Orion. And he does it in different ways. And I'm like, yeah, on pages, uh, real quick, it's on pages 72, 250, and 352. And he talks about the shoulder of Orion, but he didn't, he doesn't even know, you know, he, he's not even thinking about it where Mark is, is, is uh, uh, just, you know, walking somewhere. I forget exactly what. But um, on page uh, 250, you know, it had turned into a finite. Orion dominated the whole sky. And then in 352, this is even, it's, it's a little trickier because he talks about Sirius, the star Sirius, being bitter green. 
And the interesting thing is Orion's belt points southward to Sirius. So if you see Sirius, you're probably seeing it because Orion's belt has, is pointing southward to it. So if you see Sirius, you're seeing Orion. And why Orion? Orion the hunter? You know, is it is it sort of like a, a, a interesting thing where Mark is the hunter? I mean, I, I haven't been able to, to put my whole brain around it yet. But it's that type of stuff where if you want to spend the time and the energy, you know, dig into the uh, all these little he has quotes from from people. He has quotes from people he's made up. He, you know, the names of the characters are are interesting. I mean, you know, you 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 pronounce it Feverstone, and I'm, the entire time I read it, it's Feverstone. Well, I pronounce it Feverstone because that is the way that they pronounced it in the audiobook. In the audio, yeah. but you can see it as Feverstone. So you know, what's a fever? What's a stone? I mean, why would a stone have a fever? And it's it's sort of like you're just pulling these things out. Philostrato is a, a character in a, I think a play. I mean, it's, it's, he just uses the name in a different way. And, and it's just amazing how deep this novel can be and still, you know, be part of that, that trilogy and to, to summarize Ransom's character. I think one of the reasons why the, the gene, one of the genius things that he did was to tie it into the, the space trilogy. If this was just another random character, uh, no pun intended, um, random ransom, I guess it's getting <laughs> late. My brain is making weird connections, but, um, if, if it had just been another novel and had no connection with the, uh, with the trilogy, I don't think a lot of people would read it, you know, and it's because it's just that dense, but you put it in a trilogy and you make these little sly connections to uh, Tolkien and you and and the uh, the wardrobe series, and all of a sudden, it means it has it holds a different weight for people now, because it's like oh it has that connection it definitely has the connection to those first two books the in the the series, but those could have stood alone it could have just been a, a book and a sequel, so I think you know one of the genius things he did to make this book as popular as it has become is to tie it in. And we haven't even scratched the surface on a lot of different things. Like one of the things in here is uh, gender roles. And I know some people um, kind of bristle at some of the stuff that they say about gender roles with Jane and um, just who she is and, and how she does what she does. Uh, although I feel like, there are some things you could take a look at, but I don't feel like Jane is one of them. I feel like she's a really well-rounded character. She's not uh, quite his greatest female character. I feel like that goes to um, the book till we have faces. Mm -hmm. uh, and that also has joy Davidman's um, help behind it. So right. she was, she was there to kind of guide him along with that and, and read things and, and give him give him insight and feedback. But um, I do feel like for me, maybe some of it gets softened because Jane is more Lewis himself as far as just some of these things where it's talking about submission and obedience. He's talking about it from his experience. It's just, you know, coming through this female character, there's definitely some um, people looking at that and saying, uh, I don't know, that, that feels like it's a little too, you know, 
I don't know, misogynistic or whatever. But yeah, um, I mean, there, there's just so much more. We we have, we barely talked about the Arthurian legend stuff that was going on there. Oh yeah, um, that true. that you mentioned Logris in Britain. That's another duality that I had made a note about. Is just you have mm-hmm. the the spirit of Britain, and then you have uh, the threat uh, coming from within, and so yeah i think it is time for us to to stop talking about this this book i i was afraid and we're not we're not it's not happening but i was afraid that you know if we took our paralandra and our out of the silent planet episodes and and um put them together that would be the runtime of this episode in the same (laughs) way that the book is um but it is not it is not so i wonder what would happen you were talking about making a movie or something like could this be done modernized? It, it I, I, you would have to you would have to it, gloss over a lot of stuff because it takes some work for sure. Yeah, I mean, to, first of all, to to base anything on you know marriage is in in like a a Christian marriage of a man and a woman as the thing that is like the be all end all at the end of the series. A lot of people that would just be the deal breaker, (laughs) you know, in in this day and age, which is sad because it's like, Oh, well, what about all the other different types of of marriage? You know, well, what if, what if I marry a tree? What if I marry a a doll? You know I mean? And and that would be another issue to deal with is, are we talking about creating it from that intended Christian perspective? Or are we creating this for a, you know, BBC broad audience perspective. Right. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, they did uh, Lord of the Rings, but you lose a lot of the Christian elements and people don't understand them. It's like, well, how come they just didn't call on the Eagles all the time? It's like, well, spiritually speaking, they couldn't. You know, the Eagles had a very specific part to play, spiritually speaking, in the way that Tolkien wrote the books. So you can't just have the Eagles all the time. You know, but people don't get it because when they see the movies and they see the eagles as coming in to save them, they they just figure it's another element, another magical thing that could happen. Why didn't it happen earlier? So yeah, it, it would be different. It would be difficult to portray all the spiritual truths that Lewis is trying to get at, and not just have them be, you know, little. You know, it's just a magic spell. We can say magic spells anytime we want, right? You know, <laughs> just have them misunderstand it. All right. Well, Steve, final words. My final words comes from page 43. And if anyone ever had any doubts about um, the benefits of homeschooling children, uh, one of the characters in the book says, you mustn't experiment on children, but Offer the dear little kitties free education in an experimental school attached to the NICE, the NICE, and it's all correct. All right. And my final words are, thank you so much for listening, spending time with us, talking about this massive book in this rather long episode. And I would please, please, please ask you to join us over on YouTube, just search for strangers and aliens or search for uh, Christian sci-fi keywords like that. You can find our episodes about Out of the Silent Planet. I did another one about Paralandra and uh, one will be coming very soon about that hideous strength. These are all about for my series. Is it worth reading? Uh, After those three episodes, I will be tackling a few 
probably less known Christian science fiction titles and asking the question, is it worth reading? Uh, <laughs> and then also taking a look at maybe some other stuff as well. We'll see. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how this whole YouTube thing is going to work. And I'm not exactly sure how much more I'm going to do, but it's there right now for you if you if you'd like to. But I would ask you, please go listen, subscribe um, and and Ring hit the, the bell. Like, hit the like buttons. <laughs> is there a bell? Is I don't know if there's still? a bell anymore, but again, I'm still learning the, the ins and outs of it and just trying to figure things out. But. Ring the bell, clang those chimes, milk and bread each day three times. <laughs> Come on, ring those bells. Everybody <laughs> sing. Uh, and <laughs> as usual, in your travels, wherever you are, wherever you're going, Godspeed. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast, hosted by Ben Avery, Evan David, Steve McDonald, and Dr. Jay Samuel. Our music was composed and mixed by Tim Leffel. We'd love for you to join the conversation by going to our website at strangersandaliens.com where you'll find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com. Or you can join our social media conversations by following us on Twitter where we are at Strange and Alien or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersandaliens. Or leave us a voicemail by calling the Strangers and Aliens hotline. That number is 1-804-378. And once again, thanks for listening. They are going to get mauled by a bear. <laughs>